I really enjoyed my conversation with David Weston today, where he talks through the work that he and his colleagues at the Teacher Development Trust have done uh, in writing their working paper, A Culture of Improvement. And we talk about what actually is culture, what needs to improve, what can we do in our schools to make them places where teachers can thrive and grow so that children can succeed. So David shares the five key findings from their research he shares the four guiding principles and conclusions from what really matters in school and what can help drive um, cultural change, what can improve attainment, but in a really human kind of practical way, how, how we work together better, how we support colleagues, what are the things that really matter in terms of leadership and time, mentoring, coaching, communication. Uh, and what I enjoyed most about this was David's he calls it uh, his nerdiness, but but his enthusiasm and passion for what really makes a change in schools, especially at this very pressured and intense time. So please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with David Weston. Welcome to the Pursuit of Wellbeing podcast. My name's Maria Brosnan. I'm the founder of Pursuit and your host for the show. This podcast is dedicated to providing well-being information, inspiration and support for teachers, leaders and school staff around the world. My guest today is David Weston. David is the founder and chief executive of the Teacher Development Trust and the chair of the Department for Education's Teacher Development Expert Group. He's an author and former secondary maths and physics teacher. David is a founding fellow of the Chartered College of Teaching and sits on the College's Council. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Maria. A pleasure to be here. Thank you. Well, you and your colleagues at the Teacher Development Trust have written a working paper uh, called A Culture of Improvement. I guess a good place to start would be what needs to improve and what do you mean by culture, culture of improvement? You're starting big on the questions, aren't you, Maria? Um, but a great place to start. Um, so first of all, let's talk about improvement. Uh, I, I always reflect that as a profession, we are called to share understanding and help children to learn. And so for me, improvement as Adults who work in schools is all about, are we speaking to that mission? Are we really helping young people learn more? So in our research, we try and focus wherever possible on the links between what teachers and other staff are experiencing and whether we have evidence that those elements really help children and young people learn more effectively. So improvement for us is looking at things like academic outcomes, um, in some cases looking at some broader um, well-being outcomes as well. Mainly, mainly the papers here are academic, partly because there's more papers that look at academic outcomes through things like tests. So that's improvement, but also then a great question about culture. What does it mean? And the funny thing is, we as an organisation have been talking about the importance of culture for a very long time. But a lot of people have said, but it's really woolly. You know, anyone means nearly anything when they say culture. So what do you really mean here? So we've tried where possible to define some very specific things. And we tend to use the phrase within the paper, working conditions. But that said, we haven't been able to avoid the word culture altogether. 
So working conditions, we often talk about are uh, the external things to the teacher, the way that they are interacted with, sort of though the environment around them, the systems and processes around them, the opportunities that they're given. So those conditions you would then hope would be felt fairly evenly across staff in a particular school. So we talk in the paper about the number of opportunities to collaborate with colleagues and the level to which staff are involved in whole school planning, for example. But culture to me is a little bit more of a two way phenomenon. So I will be impacted by the culture that I am in, but I will also contribute to it. I am part of the culture. Whereas working conditions feels a little bit more dry and academic, perhaps, mm. and it's just it's a thing we can measure outside of me. But of course, we all contribute to the culture. And even though some of us have more agency, more ability to affect change in what's happening around us, we all make the weather, you know, <laughs> uh, to some extent. If I come in in a really foul mood and really unhappy, then it changes how everybody feels. If I'm really defensive or angry, it changes how everybody feels. So, yeah, I think culture, we, we draw from, we are affected by and we contribute to. Um, so that's quite complex, really, isn't it? <laughs> It is complex. And, and I, as you were speaking, it, it, you reminded me of a, a very good friend of mine, Sonia Gill, runs a wonderful company called Heads Up. And she has such a simple definition of culture, which is behavior over time. And so, as you say, you know, it's kind of a neat summary of all that you've just said of, of the things that we, we make the weather, we contribute and are affected by that. So behavior over time becomes our culture. Does that resonate? Yes, I think so. Um, I love exploring the word culture. Um, behavior over time, I think, is lovely and captures a lot of it. I think something around a culture, um, elements include, for example, what do we all believe is the right way to do things and is the wrong way to do things? Where is it fuzzy, where we perhaps have different views? And where would we all say, no, no, that's not right? But then you go another layer, you drill another layer beneath that. And then you need to look at the shared expectations of how we react if someone does something good, as far as we all believe, or does something bad, as far as we all believe. So, you know, it might well be uh, culturally, we all think that um, something simple, shouting out in class is bad, but maybe culturally the expectation is most people don't bother to react to it. Or if someone doesn't shout out, you don't really mention it. Whereas another culture, the reaction to the expectations and, and people not behaving that way is different. And then there's the bystander level. So if in, in what, how do we expect people to be either supportive or unsupportive when someone else reacts? So for example, if um, in a culture in a school, Maria, I watch you say to someone, you know, you're not wearing the correct school uniform, would, my reaction be a supportive one and say, yeah, absolutely, that was the correct thing to step up and say that. Or would I sort of roll my eyes or feel awkward or say, oh, gosh, no, or make fun. And and you see all these different layers um, in all sorts of environments. I mean, in Twitter, for example, um, when you watch people engage on there, certain statements seem to have high value and other people then make statements in support of or not in support of very publicly. And then other people want to be seen to say, yeah, I agree. Or stand back and say, oh, I don't comment on that. And the cultural expectations are so complex. 
Um, and in an arena where hundreds of different cultures are all clashing together on Twitter, no wonder we have challenges. So I think, you know, norms, expectations, behaviors, reactions, bystanders, all these things are part of the, the, the things we reflect on as cultures. And as leaders in schools, um, leaders need to think about that very carefully, not just this is what is we think is right, but this is how we think we should react to these things. And let's try and get everybody more on the same page so we're all more comfortably settled within a supportive culture that we, we all feel ownership of and part of. And that leads really neatly, David, to the, the key findings. And one, one uh, phrase that really stood out for me from, the, from your report was, we need to make schools places where teachers thrive and grow so that children can succeed. And that kind of neatly sums up what you've just said. So how can you talk us through the, the key findings uh, on how to achieve this lovely place that you described? Um, Actually, I'm just going to pick up on the word thrive. Um, I had a, a nerdy hour over last weekend. Um, not sure my partner approved of me going and having a nerdy hour off by myself, but I, I thought I actually spent a little while looking up definitions of the word thrive. Um, and I found three really interesting definitions from various places. One of the definitions of thrive is I am performing well, I am succeeding in what I do. One of the definitions of thrive also very much includes I am growing and improving and developing. And so, you know, thriving plants would definitely be seen to be growing and not just, you know, sustaining. But there's also to thrive in a situation um, or thrive despite a situation. It has a connotation that you someone can really thrive in a situation even where others may not. And the idea that as teachers and as educators and as leaders, we thrive in a complex, challenging, ever-changing, very demanding world of helping work with lots of children and young people and each other. That's something we really want. We want people to thrive no matter what the complexities and challenges are. So yeah, I just wanted to pick that up because I'm having a, a lovely nerdy time actually about the word thrive recently. I love that. Yeah. And diving deep into to words really can help us shape our thinking a lot so yeah i love those definitions well as i'm discovering and this is coming from a maths and physics teacher and i'd normally say diving into the spreadsheet gives us lots of understanding so <laughs> there we go it turns out um that despite the cynicism of some of my former english teacher colleagues it turns out our science and math teachers can think about words too <laughs> um so yes this paper anyway um so what we did was we started by scouring um the research landscape for as many papers as possible where there was a measurement of the working conditions or the culture or the environment for teachers, often through surveys, sometimes over a period of time, they'd repeatedly ask teachers certain questions about their school, but also where they were then able to cross correlate that with student attainment. And we found 14 studies from uh, around the world, the vast majority in the, the United States because um, they just tend to connect their data sets together a lot more than anybody else. But we also found an Australian one and we found a, a really interesting one from international schools, mainly in the Far East. And uh, all of them were saying very similar things when you looked at the data. And we thought, OK, let's take the findings of those and, and map them across. But then let's check these against big research reviews in areas like leadership and school improvement and areas like that. 
So in the end, we actually looked across papers, um, over 30 papers, um, but with the core of these 14 papers in the middle saying, right, here are our really sort of summarizing the quantitative findings, if you like. And when we looked across this then, even though each paper had slightly different terminology and slightly different approach, we were able to summarize and said, here are the five big messages. So the first one was that teachers seem to be more likely to improve, and that's improve in terms of their impact on young people, where they have more opportunities to collaborate with each other. And it's very specific collaboration. It's not just, you know, get together for a meeting or get together socially, but very specifically, talking about the day job, the uh, planning lessons and how are pupils doing and looking at the data in the assessment and thinking about curriculum and curriculum ambitions and how the curriculum sequence impacts on the assessments we ask and the lesson plans that we do and, and all those sorts of things. So the more time that people seemed to um, have to do that, uh, that had a really positive relationship with uh, pupil outcomes. Um, and that related and that idea of collaboration was also really important in collaboration the second one was teachers being involved in whole school planning decision making and improvement and that's really a sense of collaboration with leaders so these are the sorts of schools where leaders regularly ask teachers to reflect on the school improvement plan and ask for their views on what we might tweak and change next year and what should our priorities be and how do we plan this to help work around what you're doing um, and again, there's that collaboration and, and connection with each other, which relates to the third point, which is a culture of mutual trust and enthusiasm with really honest and open communication. And again, you see how that both is formed from and draws into, if you like, the other two, because the better we can communicate, the better we can collaborate and the better we can be informed and inform um, the school improvement plans. Um, and if all of those three together, then, help create the fourth one we found which is a sense of shared mission and shared goals shared priorities and expectations um where we're just all on the same page this actually goes back maria to what we were saying earlier about culture where what i expect of myself and my colleagues and the young people in the school is similar to what other people expect and the way we like to react is similar and all trying to do things with similar values and ethos and it's a very freeing thing actually um, when teachers tend to say it, they have to worry less about what's the right thing to do or that leaders worry less about whether people will do the right thing because they just know we're all on the same page so if you do make a decision even if i wasn't consulted it's likely to be aligned um and then the final one is, is really fascinating about safety um and particularly in classrooms there's a really strong correlation between teachers who say i'm not worried about a sort of a bit of an ongoing low low state not low stakes um low intensity battle if you like between me and my students and i'm worried they'll be shouting out and i'm worried you know having to deal with disruptive behavior because where teachers say that it's very hard for them to be learners in the classroom it's very hard for me to say i'm going to try out this new thing and i'll pause and reflect and pick my words more carefully if i'm constantly worried about oh no someone's going to shout out or be disruptive or something of course, if we're in a, a, just a wonderful shared learning environment where everyone is really engaged and standards of behavior are really high and really productive and positive, then no one in there feels anxious and everyone feels more free to learn because the stress levels are lower and the engagement is higher. So that's really key. And of course, that is also 
and process by which we collaborate with our pupils and we collaborate with our colleagues to create the right environment. So those are the, the big five. And I think people will recognize a lot of those. And many people will say, but of course. But, you know, we actually have quantitative data that show the importance. And that means we, we don't need to just anymore say, oh, yeah, you know, pay lip service to that. That's fine. Tick, tick. Off you go. And now let's talk about the really important stuff. No, this is the really important stuff. This is the stuff that helps teachers get better every day so that pupils get better. So, yeah, I'm very passionate about these five. And it may well be that if we kept digging and found more papers, we might be able to expand out and, you know, add even more. But it was lovely to find these. It was a, a joyfully nerdish process <laughs> as, as researchers to go and explore these papers. Yeah. And it's so interesting to see how these five key areas that you point out lead to better pupil attainment and stronger collegiate bonds, etc. And I find it so interesting. You could superimpose these into that lead to happiness or lead to greater well-being or lead to greater satisfaction and a sense of purpose in and, and meaning in your life and your career. Have you made those links as well, David, between, you know, pupil attainment and overall well-being of staff and leaders? We have, yes. Um, when we were looking at some of the, the other studies into this space, then um, there are more studies, it turns out, between the environment in the school and, for example, teachers' intention to stay in the profession or not. Um, so, for example, um, there are studies from the UK, actually, unlike the quantitative uh, pupil outcome data, when it comes to teacher retention data, there are big studies in the UK that show a strong relationship between the quality of the supportive environment and teachers' sense of satisfaction with the job, whether they want to stay in it, whether they feel supported, level of well-being, or whether they want to leave. And what's really fascinating is it's you know worrying to say panacea, but essentially, if we get these five aspects right, then it has multiple effects. It seems to help young people uh, do better. It seems to help teachers thrive in as much as they are both growing and improving, able to practice the day job really well and feel better in their own well-being. But it's also associated with school turnaround, for example. So when you put these conditions into schools that have been struggling and there are so many complex issues layered upon layer, well, actually, many of these things are strongly associated with the turnaround process and keeping teachers not just in schools, but in the whole profession. Teachers are more likely to stay as teachers when they've been in these sorts of environments. And my goodness, that's a great investment in any school. Absolutely. Is there anything you want to add to these five key kind of takeaway areas, David, or should we move on to what you discovered in the four guiding principles and in, in your conclusions? Well, there was one other thing we discovered, which um, certainly um, has an impact on pupil outcomes, um, less clear about the impact on things like retention and well-being and so on. But I think it's really interesting. So there have been a number of studies now that looked at um, over time, if you take groups of teachers and see how they are allocated, for example, to classes or to schools or to different par uh, partners, um, in teaching teams. And it's really interesting that each of these things seems to have an impact. One study, for example, um, looked in the United States, this was, they looked at a group of uh, primary or over there elementary teachers and tracked what happened when they stayed in the same year group 
Um, so, you know, they were teaching, say, year two this year and next year and the following year. And they found that on average, most teachers who stayed in the same year group year after year tended to improve average test scores for their pupils. Um, however, when you then track the ones that switched and particularly the ones that switched, maybe not just to year one or year three, but maybe to year four or five. So a big switch, you know, quite a, a, a big shift. They found consistently they dropped in effectiveness in that year after they switched. If, for example, I taught in year three, uh, in year two for uh, a few years and then switched to year six, you would expect I'd be less effective initially because it's new. I don't have the expertise. But if I stay in year six, then I'll start accumulating expertise and improve. And again, though, if I switch again, then boom, <laughs> you see the effectiveness drop. So this is very interesting. And it suggests that um, leaving teachers in similar circumstances to teach similar topics year after year and, and also with similar types of children means we just get better and better at understanding how to do the job. And any teacher listening to this will say, well, of course, you know, we all remember our first year in teaching and everything was brand new and really difficult. And suddenly that feeling the next year to say, I've taught that before. This is amazing. I remember that. I don't even have to plan so much. It's a joy. Um, but it also, you know, I'm not saying that every teacher should just specialize in one year group and one topic or one subject but that we just need to try and give our colleagues more stability because there's other studies that show, for example, that teacher effectiveness is impacted if you change schools. You, you dip for a little bit because you're just getting used to the new circumstance. Or if you ask secondary teachers to teach out of subject, then they certainly initially experience quite a big dip in effectiveness because rather than being real experts and they have really rich thinking patterns and rich toolkits to use in their own subject, they very much revert back to a more basic approach in teaching and a much simpler, uh, you might say, a more novice approach to teaching when they switch to a different area. Um, and then the final one was, if you put a teacher and to partner them up, say, I don't know, I'm in a dual form entry primary school, I'm in year two and, I'm, and my peer in year two is really, really effective and brilliant then you see the impact of, of on me of that effective peer. So when you look across hundreds of teachers and see if they're uh, paired up with someone who's been, you know, really, really brilliant, then you can see that the person who was initially less experienced or less effective, their effectiveness improves just by working with that teacher. And if they stay in the same year group the following year, even if the other person has disappeared, they stay more effective. So allocation, partnerships, uh, stability, all these things seem to be really important. And, and actually, I, I do feel for leaders because some of them might say, I would love to have stability, but actually they can't always do it. But as a profession, we need to take some of this a bit more seriously. And I think certainly in early career, if we can give early career teachers a bit more stability year on year about what they're going to teach, how they're teaching, who they're teaching with, then actually that can really be helpful to just build expertise in the early days. So, yeah, I think that's another important finding for everyone just to, you know, reflect on. Yeah, that makes perfect sense too. And uh, I always love it when the data matches up with common sense. So let's move on to what your conclusions and your four guiding principles are then, David. Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, I guess, you know, the first conclusion is, is just to say, I guess quite clearly that um, this makes a difference and leaders paying attention to these key ideas um, is going to make a big difference. So when we were trying to summarize, um, then we, we were trying to say that we, we don't 
we mustn't just think about CPD as a process that people go through or an event that they engage in, or even it's about learning about this or learning teaching in a certain way. It's actually about the whole learning environment for teachers. So first of all, I think our first principle was to say, look, leadership really matters. Creating the right environment really matters. So if we can help school leaders to get better at helping other people, then that's really going to help us improve the whole system and, and improve the, the health of the system as well. Um, so sometimes that means, you know, sometimes people get very tunnel visioned on this and say, oh, we need teachers to be instructional leaders and uh, perhaps just go around and observe teachers and give feedback and, and focus on curriculum. Um, but it's more than that because a leader's role is to create the environment and set the weather in which everybody else can then be their best self. So there was a lovely leadership review by uh, Leibovitz and Porter in 2019, and they talk about not narrowing down school leaders' roles to instructional leadership, but um, ensuring that all of the types of leadership are there in the right mix so that, you know, leaders are producing the most effective collaboration and teamwork and learning and so on, um, and creating this shared sense of culture and expectations. So that's really important. And I think leadership also matters in opening schools up to ideas. Um, one of the great frustrations in my career as a teacher, and I, I spent 10 years teaching, um, was this sense that no one is really telling me how to do this better. And the, when they do, it's things like you need to do an introduction and, a, and a, a starter and then a main and a plenary, or, you know, you need to put your targets on the board. And these sorts of superficial, just do that and everything is better. And there was no depth to it. Um, and it was when I joined Twitter, I think in the eighth year of teaching, and my mind almost exploded with being connected to this collegial mind of, of all of the wonderful things it turns out we, we have known, but somehow don't permeate through schools. And schools are like silos and classrooms are like silos. And why should teachers only be supported to teach with what's in their head now rather than the best ideas in the profession? So leaders need to make schools permeable to the best ideas and not just incoming ideas, but sharing the ideas out as well. So that's cross school networks and creating networks within the school and breaking down silos everywhere. Um, and, you know, really thinking about what we'd like to talk about the art and the craft and the science of people development. So, so that was the first thing that leadership um, is really important. Um, and the second thing is about time. No teacher has ever or will ever say, I have enough time and, you know, I get through everything I want to do every week. And it, it's always a series of trade-offs, which is hard, actually, because you want to do so much as a teacher. So we need to think about safeguarded time for teachers to focus on key things that matter. And these might not always be the most urgent things, but they might be the most important things. So safeguarded time for really high quality conversation and in-depth thinking and planning for the longer term and repurposing some of our meeting times that might be very administrative or inset days that might just be very kind of lectury and just listening or, you know, the way that people even just meet each other, meet each other almost socially and informally. How can we create spaces where people have better conversations and communication? And we just carve out and protect more time for better time together. Um, so that felt very important. Um, mentoring and coaching seems to be really important giving teachers the opportunity to work alongside skilled peers who 
have the skills to develop them and the skills to ask the right questions and to in sort of create the sense of growth and newfound confidence and clarity about how to be better and help all of us be better at being coached be more reflective and listen better and reflect better and jump to fewer conclusions and think and reflect with others you know and be more open to ideas so mentoring and coaching seem really important and then finally culture and communication matter we need to be better in school at listening to each other having better conversations knowing how to prepare for better conversations knowing what to do after them um, every school should be a place where difficult issues are aired and shared and dealt with and there aren't you know lots of horrible secret pent-up frustrations that no one ever dares mention or leaders who are too scared to mention something in case it causes problems or peers who say oh that person never does what they should do but no one ever dares say anything and we just have to accept that because the frustrations build up and the unfairness builds up and the lack of power to do anything about it wears people down so those are the, those are the four principles which just seem so important and I, I would say all of those are incredibly important not only for teachers and pupils thriving professionally but also personally what i really like about them david is that they're really practical in a lot of the work that I do in schools, a lot of the work is centered around exactly what you talk about, how to have um, successful, difficult conversations and how to move those things on and how to deal with those norms. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Tuckman's theory or, or our, our listeners, you know, forming, storming, norming and performing. Are you familiar with that model? And yeah. when we learn how to storm effectively, and by storm, I don't mean argue or fight, but, but skillfully, manage those issues that you mentioned can be sitting around for years or we don't talk to Jane about this because you know when we actually do skillfully deal with them we break down those unhelpful norms and our performance is directly impacted by that so I would say one of the most practical things that people can do in in improving and enhancing the culture of this school is absolutely to learn how to skillfully have those difficult conversations that directly impact the performance of the team and build a, be a better, stronger, healthier, happier culture in the school. Uh, yeah, I love that you make that link. Um, and you're right, you're right. I, I think it's very important that you say it's a very practical thing to do. This isn't a, an esoteric, vague, oh, this would be nice if everything else mm. was sorted. This is highly practical. Um, so to give a very specific example of this, there is a wonderful, wonderful school um, we've been working with for quite a few years now, um, Kozal Heath Primary School in um, Solihull. And they have a fantastic head teacher there, um, Nicole Fowles. And um, she is so focused on really great conversation and communication. And actually, she's a trained coach in fierce conversations, the, the methodology. Um, uh, fantastic. I, I occasionally find people get scared about the name, but it's sort of fiercely involved and fiercely effective communication rather than fierce as an angry. But what's wonderful is that if you watch the way she and her staff interact now, she will have rather than a pupil progress meeting, she will have a learning and standards review and teachers will come along having thought so carefully about what is it that I've seen in my classroom? What is it I'm learning? What's the evidence that I'm seeing in my classroom from the impact of my teaching, of the impact of my own professional learning? And they bring with them great artifacts and 
pieces of information to discuss because they're so well versed in how this conversation is going to flow and the sorts of questions they'll be asked and where they can contribute their thoughts and they're confident that this isn't a defensive moment i have to defend my thoughts but i need to share and articulate where i'm up to and what i'm seeing and nicole carefully creates that structure where they think of the coaching conversation ahead of and then they bring things along and she weaves the questioning between what are you seeing what are you understanding how is that impacting what you're learning where are you getting more support and ideas from what could you try what do you need more to focus on um how are you working with colleagues and that it's a such a powerful conversation which weaves together everything from appraisal professional learning data and assessment curriculum planning uh research and evidence and it's so powerful that when they then weave those conversations into termly appraisal and reflection conversations and to uh, individual coaching that they do in their professional learning conversations it is an empowered and highly highly rigorous sets of conversations and as when i was interviewing nicole for a, a um, one of our videos for our, our network we have a network of schools and i love interviewing some of our leaders and sort of helping others see what they do and when i was interviewing her i said it might sound to some people nicole that this is kind of fluffy right it's kind of fluffy and easy and always really nice and there's low challenge and i said but it's not the case is it she said no and here's a really good example she said we've had people who've come from schools where they're sort of expected to be told what to do and they sort of have data sort of sucked out of them and the judgment is passed down and she said they are not used to the rigorous level of self-reflection they have to do or how much they have to do to actually gather their own impact evidence and some people have found it deeply uncomfortable to suddenly shift into actually being so empowered they're not used to it and some people haven't made the switch they said i'd rather be told what to do um, and she said it's not for everyone it's not easy um, and there's a lot of very deep reflection in there and i think that's really important because i hear leaders who fear a conversational um a discursive environment because they think it's too easy and the challenge is too low and maybe someone will think they're failing but it's just not the case no absolutely not and it it creates those conversations then become about feedback rather than defense defending your position and uh trying to to, to keep yourself protected in some way it's it just completely changes things just having some skill and some some framework around those conversations absolutely and in fact just to just to sort of i guess reiterate it's not just about how the one person leads the conversation it's how we're all in the conversation absolutely and recently my team and i have become just slightly obsessed about the book thanks for the feedback about the sheer importance of learning to receive feedback better and learning to be the other person in the conversation because otherwise if you always say oh well you're not you, you can't be giving the feedback well enough well maybe that person is just really bad at listening to feedback and actually they need to work on themselves yeah. because to be part of this culture we want to set here you must be open to feedback and if you feel yourself getting defensive you need to self-regulate and deal with it or say something yeah. because it shouldn't just be you know that person isn't managing your emotions and your reflection and your listening you are and i think that's so important you know create the environment in which we're all responsible for our own engagement in the conversation and the giving and the receiving of feedback 
And that is so directly tied to our well-being, to be able to self-regulate and to um, manage our emotional responses, especially to things like difficult feedback. Um, it, it's key, absolutely key to our well-being. Um, absolutely. Uh, and, and the funny thing is, I mean, in my team, we we particularly at the moment, so at the moment, Maria, we are in this incredibly rapid and exciting startup of a big new project for us, which is um, a new NPQ suite. So we're going to be one of the lead providers for NPQs, and hopefully we'll be delivering those NPQs across the country. And as with any big new project or a big change, there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of clarification going on on the fly. And we often feel like Wallace and Gromit, where, you know, we're really um, laying out the tracks in front of us as the train is going. <laughs> and to, in order to have the conversations that deal with that, we have to be able to say, I just had a really emotional reaction to that. I'm not actually sure why. Can you just give me a moment while I figure it out? Or I've realized I'm feeling uncomfortable and I'm not sure why. Can I just, can we just take a moment and reflect? And to not get sucked into the emotion and then be led by it, but actually just to take a moment and sit with it and try and figure it out. And even just say, is it okay if we come back to this? I think I just need to go off for a cuppa and come back. Is a hard, hard discipline, but my goodness, it opens doors and allows people to feel heard and valued. And, and you know, for me as a leader to not have to pretend that I'm always fine and happy and you know everything is great to say, oh, actually, I'll tell you what, I've had some highs, euphoric highs and some you know crashing lows recently. And for us to understand each other is really important. And the difference it makes for well-being to have that network and that openness uh, feels so important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and the, I love the language that you're using there, but it's so rare to hear people talking about, hang on a second, I'm feeling this way and I need to just own that. Because when you do, then you can move with that experience rather than bottle it up and put a lid on it. It, it can just be tucked away as a little niggling thing between you and your colleague. And it's like, oh, right, okay. I remember when David said that to me and it triggered this response in me. Yeah. And to be able to say, hang on, something just happened there. Let me process this and I'll come back to you rather than, what did you say that for? Or, you know, to, to, to come back in an, in an aggressive or unhelpful way. Absolutely. Or in fact, you know, even that thing where I'm in this meeting and then I go off and say, oh, I remember there was that moment where Maria seemed to raise her eyebrow when I said one thing. And then it goes around around my head and I start in over interpreting it as she really thought, oh, she thinks I was really stupid and she didn't believe any of that. And, da, da, da. and to have the environment where someone can say, can I just check in with you? Yes. I think I noticed this happen and my interpretation is this and but I might have let myself run way away or I might have been missing something. Yeah. Um, otherwise, you know, every email you send, everything, you're on tenterhooks because you think, oh, my goodness, I'm so terrified of someone receiving this the wrong way. I'm, I'm no longer saying anything. And for me to be better at expressing myself it also requires me to know my colleagues will get back to me if they think there's something wrong. Yeah. Because um, otherwise, you know, walking on eggshells is it's not the way to be in an organisation. Very uncomfortable. You be free. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think emotional intelligence really leads into that. And that, and I love that. It's a very deep level of questioning or, or, or commenting to be able to say, "I've noticed this. Can we, you know, can we just work through this?" It's it's the deepest level of of relational intelligence I think that there is. So yeah, very nicely done. Go. Yeah, Thank you. Thank you. it's a work in progress as ever. And some days you think, oh, I didn't manage that today. <laughs> I know. I know. Well, it's, it's the training that I do in schools with leadership teams all the time. And, and it's, and for most people, it's a new skill set. 
and and it takes practice and and for all of us it's a work in progress but but definitely something to work towards it feels like a really good time to start to wrap up david is there anything you want to add i feel like we've covered lots of really good action points and takeaways is there anything else that you'd like to add that people listening to this could, could apply or just any other comments before we wrap up Sure. Well, I mean, you know, uh, being a, an organisation that is explicitly joyfully nerdy, I would, I'd love people to read the paper. Um, and you can just download it from our website. It's TD Trust. That's Tango Delta Tango. TDTrust.org slash COI for Culture of Improvement. And we, you can download the paper and read through some of the findings there. And there's also videos and things on there where we discuss that with um, with various other people as well. Um, so that'd be the first thing is go and have a look. And actually, if you're on the website, there's loads of blogs and examples and papers if you want to just dive into this. And I think diving into a bit of reading is wonderful. Never think you'll reach the end. Literally, you just keep, you know, you've got to crawl down a rabbit hole for a while and then you suddenly realise you're there and you have to stop and go back to reality. But do it. But do it for the love of just learning. And that's great. Um, I would say, you know, people often say, well, where do I start with some of this work? And Sometimes just thinking about how we organize our cultures and our schools for learning, some of the practical steps can be really important. And um, I'd probably be remiss not to gently uh, mention the book that I've co-written with uh, um, my uh, former colleague, Bridget Clegg, um, Unleashing Great Teaching. And we tried to just summarize those practical things and, and mental models that uh, CBD leaders and head teachers have when they try and pull all these pieces together. Um, so, you know, I, I'd recommend that. And there are some fascinating uh, videos and things if you uh, search for the TTT video channel or um, have a look at uh, some of the work that I and my colleagues have done on research ed as well. Um, but otherwise also, you know, we'd love to, we'd love this to be kind of an ongoing conversation, really. Um, we have a monthly bulletin where we just try and summarize what's new and exciting in the thinking around leadership and professional learning. And so if you you know sign up for that bulletin or newsletter on our website, then just hopefully we can drip feed some of this through because uh, I just think it's fascinating. And I don't know any leader who isn't actually fascinated by this, but sometimes we need to give ourselves permission and time to, to really dive in. So uh, so yeah, tdtrust.org, have a, have a look there. Or if you want to follow me on Twitter, for stupid historical reasons, which I now regret, I am at informed, that's I-N-F-O-R-M-E-D, informed underscore E-D-U, informed edu. Um, and, you know, DM me, send a message, you know, lovely to connect with people. Fantastic. Oh, thank you so much for your time, David. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you so much for having me, Maria. It's a pleasure. So I've been speaking with David Weston. So you can connect with David on Twitter, as you said, at, at informed underscore edu these are all in the show notes so you don't need to remember them if you're driving or doing something where you can't make a note um, the teacher development trust website is tdtrust.org and the culture of improvement working paper is at that website with forward slash coi culture of improvement david thank you so much for your time thanks maria thanks so much for listening now check out our website pursuitwellbeing.com if you enjoyed the podcast, please hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And if you feel inspired, please rate and review it and share it with your friends. I love getting your feedback and learning how we can improve our program.